Well, good morning, everyone. Joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, this morning and uh, to see uh, everyone out there today. Uh, We're going to be coming back to the Gospel of Luke this morning, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9. We're going to read a couple of different um, uh, passages from Luke chapter 9, and uh, we are going to start with uh, verse 18 and read through verse 22, and then we're going to skip over to verse 28 and read that passage about the transfiguration. Uh, So if you'd like to follow along uh, in your Bibles, you can, or on the slides up above. Uh, But let's uh, pray before we read this morning. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, as always, for the gift of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself to us uh, through your word, through your Holy Spirit, uh, and uh, mostly through your Son, Jesus Christ, and uh, that you have allowed us to know who you are, that you have allowed us to know what you are about, what you are like. And so we pray, Lord, in, as we go through this life of faith, that you would allow us to come to know you more and more each day. And we pray this morning that you would speak to us once again from your word, that you would quiet our hearts and our minds this morning, so that whatever you have to say to us today, uh, that we would be ready to receive it. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So starting with verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then skipping ahead to verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. And the disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. I'll go ahead and read the next verse too. It says, The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So we'll uh, continue with a little uh, question and answer since Ms. Stona uh, set that up for us. Um, how many of you ha- are familiar with the book series or the movies, The Lord of the Rings? Is anybody familiar with these books, The Lord of the Rings? Okay, a lot of you are. Maybe have read them yourself. If you haven't, that's okay. You don't need to, to know the story to understand the illustration here. But I remember the first time I read through The Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, was when I was in junior high school. I was a uh, uh, maybe 12, 13 years old. I won't tell you what year that was. Um, and I should, I should confess, the first time I read it, I didn't actually finish them. I got about halfway through the second book and stopped. Uh, but uh, I lost a little steam after that. But even back then, even the first time I read it, I remember that there was a character in these books who immediately drew my attention. And he became my favorite character in the books. And his name was Strider when you first meet him. His name is Strider in the books. And I liked him, I liked him so much. When the, when the movies came out uh, a decade or so later, I was excited to see how this character was portrayed in the movies. I still remembered him and wanted to see who, who is going to play this character and what is he going to be like? What are they going to uh, make him seem like in these movies? And even though I hadn't picked up the books in that time, I still was excited to see how Strider was going to be portrayed. If you have read the books, you know this, but, but Strider is this mysterious, shadowy figure in the books. And at first, when you first meet him, you don't know if he is a good guy or a bad guy when you first run into Strider. And whether you don't know whether you should trust him or not when he first appears in the books. He's a member of a group called the Rangers. They're men who roamed in the wilderness, and they were believed to have special powers. And nobody knew quite where they came from, but respectable townspeople kept their distance from them. They knew that you don't want to get too close. And this was the case with Strider, too. You, You know he's dangerous on some level, and you know that you don't want to mess with him. And yet there's something noble about him as well. And you pick up on that right away as you're introduced to him. And it's clear that there is more to his story. There's more than what first meets the eye. And so the question, at least for me when I was reading these books, and I think for for most people who read them, is who is Strider? Who is he? What is his identity? And what does it mean for the story, who he is? And seeking the answers to these questions is part of what makes Strider so intriguing. And as you read through the books, the answers to these questions begin to be brought to light. They start to be revealed. Who Strider is slowly is revealed to you as you go through the books. And eventually, you get the big reveal. Now, if you haven't read the books, I'm not going to spoil it for you and tell you who he is. But just know, he's kind of a big deal. And if you read them, you should pay attention to who he is. Uh, The story hinges on his identity and mission. Now, it's clearly not an exact parallel here, but one of the themes that we've seen running through the Gospel of Luke in these first nine chapters is the question of Jesus' identity. Who is he? Who is this man? What is he up to? And why is he doing the things that he is doing? And these are are legitimate questions to be asking, certainly for people at the time, but also for us today. Who is Jesus? And what has he come to do? 
In the early chapters of Luke, this, these first nine chapters, they give us a picture of a man, and we've talked about this before already, but they give us a picture of a man who travels around uh, teaching the scriptures with authority. And he performs miracles ranging from, from physical healings to, to exorcisms, casting out uh, demons and evil spirits, commanding the forces of nature, even raising people from the dead. This is what Jesus is doing as he travels around. And along the way, he, he challenges religious leaders and Jewish traditions and laws, and he socializes with people of suspect reputations, and he even assumes the role of forgiving sins, a privilege that was reserved for God alone. And so people naturally ask the question, who is this? Who is this? Who is this Jesus Sometimes the question comes in the form of sort of a challenge. Who does he think he is? Who does this man think he is who is doing these things? And this is often from the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. But it's also asked as this. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Or from John the Baptist, are you the one that we have been waiting for? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? These are all of the different ways that people ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is this person that we are dealing with? Now, in, in one sense, these questions are answered for us at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. In Luke's chapters 1 and 2, the birth narratives tell us that the baby born to Mary will be the son of the Most High and the son of God, and he will sit on the throne of David forever. And when he's born, the angel announces to the shepherds that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So we can argue that already we know Jesus' identity from the very beginning of the gospel. But in another sense, Luke spends much of his gospel answering this question, especially in these first nine chapters that we are preaching through. Luke has been slowly revealing Jesus' true identity to us. Or it might be better to say that Jesus is slowly revealing his identity to people around him, and Luke is reporting on that through his gospel. The idea of revelation is important throughout Scripture. And I say that, revelation with a small r, right? I thought a lot of times when we hear revelation, we think of the last book of the Bible. But this idea of revelation is one that runs throughout all of Scripture. The idea that there are things that are not self-evident to us as human beings, that there are things that we could not just figure out on our own. And so we need to be told. We sang the song earlier, uh, How Great Thou Art, right? And it talks about looking at God's creation, right? And, and understanding that there is a God who exists, that who has created all things that's created us. But how would we know what that God was like unless he revealed it to us? The character of that God, that that God is a loving and gracious God. So this is the idea of revelation, that God reveals things to us. In Scripture, this happens through the messages of the angels and the prophets. It happens through visions and dreams sometimes. It happens through God's own words and works. And we might even use the Annunciation as an example of this in Luke chapter 1. Uh, Mary becomes pregnant by supernatural means. She might have known that this is a miraculous thing happening. But if the angel Gabriel had not come and told her what was going on and who this baby was, how would she have ever figured that out for herself? It needed to be revealed to her. 
So the revelation of who Jesus is happens for his followers throughout his teachings, throughout his healings and miracles, and through the things that he is saying about himself. So we might ask the question, well, what's the purpose of doing it this way? Why does Luke give us a clear answer at the beginning of his story, only to keep teasing it out like we don't already know? And I can't say what the answer is, why Luke does that for sure, but I do think that there are some benefits to us in seeing how Luke reveals Jesus' identity slowly. And there are a couple of different benefits. The first one is this, that we learn from the characters in Luke. We learn from the characters in Luke. As the readers of this book, we stand outside of the narrative looking in, and it it is okay for us to know who Jesus is from the very beginning. But we also get to see how people in the story respond to him as his identity is slowly revealed. These people who don't already know who he is. They don't know the same things that we do. These characters don't know that Jesus is the Son of God or the Messiah. And so many of them are encountering him for the very first time. Hearing his teachings, seeing his healings and his miracles. And as they learn more about him, as they discover his identity, people respond in different ways. And this is one of the things we're seeing in Luke so far. We see the crowds. The crowds show up. In the beginning of our passage today, Jesus says, Who do the crowds say I am? These large masses of people that are following him around. And these are people who follow Jesus around from place to place. They seem to like listening to his teachings, that there's something good in what he's saying. They really like the miracles that he performs. And these seem to be people who who mostly like what Jesus can do for them. They like how he makes them feel. But also, on some level, they still want to keep him at arm's length, right? They still want to keep Jesus a little bit out there. If Jesus is making me feel good, if he's healing people or people that I know, maybe me, that's great. But I don't want to get too close, There are people who have a negative response to Jesus and what he's doing. And these are typically people who had some sort of power or influence, either religiously or politically, and they see Jesus as upsetting the settled order of things. These are people who like things the way that they are, and they especially like their own position in the settled order of things. So if Jesus comes and misses things up, then they may not have the same position of influence that they already have. And so they find themselves opposed to Jesus and to his mission, and they start to plot against him. And then we have the disciples. And these are the people uh, that are following Jesus around, and the more they discover who he really is, the more their lives are changed by him. These are the folks who we might call all in, and they uh, are giving their lives and allowing them to be truly impacted and changed by Jesus' teaching and ministry. And there are 12 men in particular of that group that Jesus has set apart to be his apostles. The thing that I love about these folks, these disciples, these, these all-in people, uh, is that they're trying so hard to follow Jesus and to get it right, and yet they still can't seem to quite do it. That's an encouragement for us, by the way, these days, right? Those of us who are really trying to follow Jesus. There's something that they still seem to be missing all the time. Jesus sends out the 12 with the authority to heal people, to cast out demons, which they do. And then a few verses later, uh, which Joe preached on last week, they're not sure how they're going to feed everybody. Even after performing these miracles themselves, they're like, we don't have enough food for everybody, Jesus. We might as well send them home, right? They still don't quite get it. They're learning who Jesus is slowly, and there's mixed results to all of this. But they are moving in the right direction. 
So we, the readers, learn from these characters and their encounters with Jesus. As they discover his identity and as they respond to it, it holds up a mirror for us too. What is our response to Jesus? What is our response to Jesus when we see all of these things? Do we mostly want him to do stuff for us and to make us happy? Is that our response to who Jesus is? We're good with Jesus as long as everything is just fine in my life. That's one way we can respond to him. Are we okay with Jesus as long as he doesn't upset the status quo of things? As long as Jesus, if I can use him and his teachings and what he says to keep life just the way I like it, then I'm good with Jesus and I'll I'll be okay with him. Or, Are we like the disciples? Are we ready to throw in our lot with him and to stumble after him wherever that might lead, allowing him to transform our lives in the process? So when we see the way that these different characters in Luke respond to him, we have to ask ourselves, well, where do I fit into this picture as well? So that's one of the first benefits. We learn from the characters in Luke. The second benefit is this. Another benefit of Luke writing this way is it teaches us what the Messiah is all about. We know from the beginning of Luke that Jesus is the Son of God, and and knowing that by itself might allow us to just jump over all of this middle stuff straight to the crucifixion and the resurrection. We could find out that Jesus is born, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and then just skip ahead to him dying on the cross and coming back to life, and maybe that would be enough for us to say we know Jesus died for us. But then we would miss all of these things that we are supposed to know about Jesus that come in the middle of the Gospels. We would miss the bulk of what Luke wants to tell us about who Jesus is and his character. Knowing that Jesus is the Son of God or the Messiah is important, but it's in these encounters with other people, which Luke details for us, that we learn what his character is, which in turn tells us what God's character is. We learn what God is like and what God cares about by looking at Jesus' life as Jesus' life unfolds for us in the Gospels. This is how we come to know that God is a loving God because of the way we see Jesus interact with other people. This is how we come to know that God is a personal God by the fact that we see that he sent Jesus, his own son, to come and live with us and we see the way that he interacts with other people and cares about their daily lives and their daily joys and struggles. This is how we know that God cares about our loved ones and our sicknesses and our griefs. We know because we see these traits in the life of Jesus himself. So without the stories of Jesus told to us in Scripture, we might have wrong ideas about the God that we worship, which would change what it means to follow him. So by learning that Jesus is the Son of God at the beginning of the book, we learn what he's like as we read, rather than putting it all together later. So that's, I think, the second benefit. We observe what Jesus' life is about. And the third one is this, repetition is good. Do we have any educators out there? Any teachers? Yes, we have some. Repetition is a proven teaching tool, right? We say the same things over and over and over again with the hope that it will sink in eventually, one day, sometimes with more success than others. But we hear these things over and over again, and repetition is good for us. What harm can it do to us to be told that Jesus is the Son of God in chapter 1, only to be reminded again later and then again later, right? This is who Jesus is. 
What we're told about Jesus in chapter 1 isn't necessarily going to stick with us by chapter 3 or again by chapter 9. And we need to be reminded. And what we really need is to be confronted by what Scripture has to say about Jesus on a regular basis. Who he was, what he's like, and what he is about. It's what we believe about these things that shapes the way that we live our lives as Christians. If we believe that Jesus cares about people who are poor and hungry, then we will care about people who are poor and hungry. And if we believe that Jesus cares what we do with our money and possessions, then we will also care about what we do with our money and our possessions. And if we believe that Jesus wants people to put their faith in him and to follow him, then we also will want people to put their faith in him and to follow him. So Luke revealing to us who Jesus is in this slow way, in many different ways, can only be a good thing for us. So, but even as much as all of Luke is focused on this question, who is Jesus? Chapter 9, in particular, brings things to a head. Jesus' identity and mission are revealed to us explicitly in these passages in three different important voices, or from three different important voices. We hear from Peter... We hear from Jesus himself, and we hear from God the Father in these verses that we just read about who Jesus is and about what he came to do. As I said, chapter 9 is all about the identity of Jesus. Even early on in verses 7 through 9, we see King Herod uh, asking these questions. He catches wind of Jesus' ministry and what people are saying about him. And he says, who is this? Is this John the Baptist raised back to life? Is this Elijah? Is this one of the prophets of old who has arisen? And so Herod is curious. Who is this that I am hearing about? He asks that question too. And then in verses 18 through 22, which we just read, we hear these same claims again. Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples respond to him. They say, well, maybe, maybe an Old Testament prophet, maybe a returned prophet who's come back to life. Or maybe somebody who has come in the same spirit and power as these, these prophets. Maybe even Elijah. And the dramatic tension builds throughout this chapter until we get to the question that Jesus asks, the climactic question that he asks of his disciples. All of these people asking who Jesus is with all of these different answers and theories, with all of these different responses to him, and Jesus turns the question around on his disciples and says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? What about you? Who do you say that I am? It's a big moment in the Gospels, and and it's one that really puts the disciples on the spot. What will they say? What are they going to say? They have all of these options to choose from, but Jesus is asking them to commit in some way, to decide for themselves who they think he is. With all that they have seen and heard and experienced for themselves, all of these things that they have witnessed, all of this this time they've had with Jesus, just them with, with their Lord, with their teacher, what do they think? Who is Jesus? Now, the text doesn't really tell us. It doesn't have a little parenthetical awkward pause here, uh, place. We don't know what the initial response was if the disciples were sort of silent for a minute. But we have Peter. And you have to love Peter, right? He's so impulsive. He's all heart, right? And, and I don't know if he just jumps in, but I kind of imagine that Peter just blurts it out, right? God's Messiah. Who do you say that I am? God's Messiah. That's who you are. And, and I think if I'm one of the other disciples, I have a sigh of relief. Thank you, Peter, for answering for us. We're off the hook now, right? Right? 
It's this moment of revelation. It's a moment of revelation. The reality of who Jesus is is being revealed. It's being revealed to the other disciples who are there. It's being revealed to us as the reader once again. And it's even being revealed to Peter. In Matthew's version of this story, Jesus says to Peter, God bless you, Peter. You didn't come up with this yourself, but it was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. This is something that you wouldn't just come up with on your own. It had to be revealed to you. Jesus isn't just another prophet of old, as great and rare as they are. He's not just Elijah come back, but he is something more. He is the one that they have been waiting for, the one that God has promised for so long, the one sent to deliver Israel to save them. And Peter has seen and experienced all he needs to at this point. He is convinced that this is who Jesus is. This is his identity, which is why Peter has chosen to follow Jesus and to make Jesus and his mission what his own life is all about. Jesus is God's Messiah. It's the first big reveal from today's passage, and we hear it from Peter. And then the second big reveal comes right afterwards, and we hear from Jesus himself. Jesus immediately follows up Peter's confession with a statement about what he has come to do. He's the Messiah, yes, but what exactly does that mean? And that's another one of the questions that we keep uh, trying to answer throughout Luke's gospel and all of the gospels. He's the Messiah, but what exactly does that mean? And Jesus tells us here, at least part of it, but it's not exactly what anybody was expecting. People assumed the Messiah was going to be a strong man. It was going to be a conquering hero. He was someone who was going to come and put the Roman Empire in its place. But Jesus here says that being the Messiah means suffering and rejection and death. Resurrection too, there is no question. But it was going to look like a defeat before it looked like victory. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. This victory that Jesus was offering wasn't exactly what people were looking for. It's not the way that they expected it to come about. But Jesus is saying, this is the way things are going to be. God's Messiah doesn't use worldly means to achieve his purposes, to achieve his victory, but godly ones, which include in humility and obedience and the sacrificing of his life for the sake of others. This is the lot of God's Messiah and for his followers as well. It's significant that Jesus tells his disciples this right after Peter's confession. Once once they are convinced that he is the Messiah, then he tells them what that is going to mean. They believe in who he is, and now they're ready to know what that actually means for him. Now, of course, they don't fully understand it yet, and we'll see that play out in the Gospels, but uh, they won't fully understand until after the resurrection, until after they encounter the risen Christ But things are being revealed to them as they follow. And this is a significant moment for the disciples to hear these things. And this brings us to the third big reveal. We're going to spend a little more time here with the transfiguration. Uh, It says that this happened about eight days after this. So it's still pretty recently after these two first big reveals. These things would have been fresh in the disciples' minds. And Jesus went to pray and he took uh, Peter and James and John with him. And this passage, this episode, uh, has much to say about who Jesus is and what he is here to do as well. 
It's what uh, some people might call a high holy passage. It's one that, that sort of draws back the curtain for us, or it, it sort of uh, breaks the barrier between uh, heaven and earth. And we get to see something different happen here. It gives us a glimpse of what is going on on a cosmic level. It shows us a big picture, if only for a moment. And in the course of this exchange, we are given an authoritative statement about Jesus' identity by the authoritative voice on the matter, who is God the Father. In this passage, we see Jesus be transfigured. He is changed. His face is altered. His clothes become a dazzling white. We are seeing Jesus in his glory here. And this is, for most people, the most memorable part of the passage. It's what we remember. It's what gives the passage that his name, uh, that Jesus was in this sort of white as lightning uh, appearance. And we are in this moment seeing Jesus for who he really is. His character, his person, they are all on full display in his appearance here. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, as the Nicene Creed says. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is holy. And this is what is being revealed to us here and to the disciples who were present. And this is worth reflecting on. This this Jesus who we know and love, this Jesus who who came so close, uh, who we have such great affection for, who many of us call friend because he has called us friend, is also the Holy One of Israel, who alone is worthy to be worshipped and praised. And we should never forget that when we're dealing with Jesus. And then, not only is Jesus there, fully blindingly white, but we also have Moses and Elijah there with him, who are also appearing in glory. These two great prophets from Israel's history, and their presence there on this mountain tells us many things about Jesus' mission. Moses is the great prophet of the Exodus. He's he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, many people say. He led God's people out of slavery and bondage and led them to salvation in the promised land. And then Elijah is the the great miracle-working prophet who brought God's word to evil kings and to a wayward people, who called people to repentance, who proclaimed God's judgment on others, who raised people even to life. And he is also the one who is going to turn the hearts of the people to repentance on the great day of the Lord at the very end of the age. And so the presence of these prophets there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration communicates to us that Jesus' mission is the continuation and the fulfillment of what God has been doing all along throughout Israel's history. God pursues his people and calls them back to himself. And saves them from their bondage. In the Exodus, he rescued them from from slavery in Egypt. For Jesus, he rescues us from our bondage to sin and to death. Which leads to freedom from all kinds of bondage in our lives. Elijah and Moses here, they speak to Jesus about his departure in Jerusalem. And they're talking about his death on the cross. But the word here for uh, for departure that's translated departure is exodus. Exodus. So Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus about his exodus, which ties his death back to the very work that Moses had done all those years ago in the life of Israel. They're talking about his death on the cross. 
and that, that this is how Jesus is going to accomplish his mission. His death will be the means for bringing people to salvation and repentance for all who would put their trust in him. And the passage ends here with the words of God the Father, as we said before. His presence is shown by the cloud that overshadows them. And I hope you see all the parallels here with the story of Jesus' baptism, right? We have a cloud that signifies God the Father's presence. We hear the voice of God the Father say, this is my son. You are my son. Again, it's a repetition, a reminder for us of who we are dealing with. And God speaks here in an audible voice. And says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's not common even in scripture to hear God's audible voice. And so when it shows up, we really should listen to it. Uh, As my New Testament professor said, take the word of the Lord. When you hear God speak in scripture, pay close attention to what he is saying. And here we have God the Father speak saying, this is my son. Listen to him. The Father affirms Jesus as his Son, as the Holy One, the Messiah. And by calling Jesus his Chosen One, he's not just saying the same thing again. It's not another way of saying this is my Son, but he's tying Jesus to the servant of God in the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant who redeems Israel at great cost to himself. For Jesus, his identity as the Son of God inevitably leads to the cross, as he told his disciples, to his suffering and his death on our behalf. This great and holy God lays down his very life for us so that we might be saved. This is the character of Jesus. This is who he is. His holiness, his glory, his crucifixion and resurrection and our redemption, they're all bound together. This is what the Messiah has come to do. The final word that that God gives here is one of discipleship or what it means to believe in and follow Jesus. And this passage uh, covers the two big questions of all of Scripture. Who is Jesus? What does he come to do? And I'll add another one. What does that mean for me? And I think there's a few takeaways for us from this passage. And the first one is this. It goes back to Jesus' big question to his disciples earlier where he says, What about you? Who do you say that I am? If you've heard this passage before, if you heard somebody preach on this passage before, you've probably heard this said, but it's worth saying again. Again, repetition is good. It's a question that we can just read over in Scripture and and pass over it like it just applied to the disciples, but really it's one that we have to ask of ourselves. It's one that Jesus confronts with every person who is introduced to him in some way. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? When you look at all we see in the Gospels, when we look at the things that Jesus has said, the things that he does, the way that people respond to him, when you look at the way that people respond to Jesus now and the way that he has worked in other people's lives, what is your response? What is your response to that question? You can choose to ignore the question and pretend it doesn't apply to you. You can remain noncommittal about it. I don't want to answer that yet. I'm still figuring it out. That's okay. These things can take time. But the question is still there for each one of us. And how you answer it will have major implications for your life. If Jesus is God's Messiah, if he is God's Son, 
If he did die on the cross and rise again on the third day to new life, then the response that he asks for is one of faith and of repentance, of turning away from our sin and of following. And he says that doing this will lead to full life in this world and in the one to come. So how will you respond to that question? What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? How will you respond? If you respond with yes, if that's your answer to that question, then we can move to the next couple of pieces of application from this scripture. Uh, We see here that the life of discipleship begins with the words of the Heavenly Father. Listen to him. Listen to him. If you've come to a place where you want to follow Jesus with your life, then this is the first step. You start by listening. Start by listening. We are to listen. We listen in prayer. I I don't know if you noticed this, but the beginning of each of these passages that I read today started with Jesus praying. Jesus himself prayed all the time, was always going to his heavenly Father, seeking his counsel, having these times of communion with him, uh, looking for his leading throughout life. This is something that we are called to do, to listen to the Lord in our lives. This is where we start with discipleship. So we listen in prayer. We listen to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives. We listen to the word of God in Scripture. Listen to him. We listen to the communion of the saints, the people that we share fellowship with, because God speaks through his body many times. Listen before you act. Listen and be changed. Listen to him. Listen to him. And finally, we see that the life of discipleship means that we can't stay on the mountain. That's one of the reasons I wanted to read that last verse where they come down. And I think this is a really important thing for us to remember, for those of us who have already become the all-in type of people. Many of us have had experiences, whether we go on a retreat or a conference or even sometimes on Sunday morning, where we have these times of worship or teaching or fellowship or whatever they are, and we just don't want to leave. I remember uh, last summer at youth, uh, at, at TCK camp, talking to some of the students about this. I've had these experiences before where you think, it's so easy to believe in God when I'm at camp. And it's so easy to, to uh, be faithful when I'm at this great conference where we're just singing worship songs all the time or when I'm at small group and we're praying, whatever it is. And so we, again, Peter, impulsive Peter, we want to say, let's just build uh, tents here and we'll all just stay here for forever, right? That's what we want because God's presence is so fully felt in these places and we want to stay on the mountain. And I think we can forgive Peter for feeling this way uh, and for saying what he's saying. Of course we want to stay there. You've got Moses there, you've got Elijah there, you've got Jesus there. Who wants to deal with other people, right? We just want to stay on this mountain, right, with Jesus fully there, transfigured before us. But that is not what we are called to do. It's not what we're called to do. When we have these mountaintop experiences, which people call them, they are for a purpose. God is revealing himself to us in this way for a reason, and it's for the benefit of us, yes, but also for the benefit of the whole world, for the life of the whole world. And so we stay up on that mountain for a time, for a season, for as long as Jesus has for us, but then we are called to come back down and to re-enter into everyday life. These lives that we live with our families and our friends and our coworkers and neighbors and everybody else. 
and to live out this call to discipleship that God has placed in front of us. We cannot stay on the mountain. We experience these moments of holiness and we let them open our eyes to the big picture of what God is doing in the world. But then we follow the Holy Spirit back down into our regular, everyday lives, whatever those look like, laying down our lives as a witness to what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for us all. So friends, what do you say? Who is Jesus to you? Are you ready to put your faith in him? Are you ready to repent? Are you ready to follow and to come down from that mountain wherever that will lead? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for the gift of revelation. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to figure all of these things out but that you have shown yourself to us, that you have told us who you are, that you have told us that you love us, that you care for us, that we are precious to you. Lord, also that you have told us that we are wayward sheep in a mess on our own and that we need a shepherd and that you have sent that shepherd to us to call us to follow him. So we pray, Lord, that we would would, uh, know We would know Jesus' voice, we would hear it, that we would listen to him, and that we would follow where he leads us. And God, we pray for anyone here today who is still wrestling with this question of who you are, of who Jesus is, and we pray that you would reveal yourself to each of of us more and more, that we might become more convinced that Jesus is your Messiah, your son, who you sent because you love us. And that whoever would put their faith in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We ask this all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.